chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. And if you've come today and you don't have a Bible on you, we have Bibles at the back table. Feel free to jump up and grab one. And I'd just like to say how good it is to be here with you all today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regards to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. Thanks so much, Sarah. Let's uh, pray and ask that God would speak to us uh, as we think about these words. Dear Heavenly Father, we're starving for your glory. Lord, although that's not the diagnosis uh, for our maladies and our uh, distresses that we might give, uh, Lord, the reality is that our deepest need is to see your glory and to behold you in the face of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we ask that as we reflect now on your scriptures, those words which speak about the Lord Jesus Christ, as we think about this meal, the Lord's Supper, that reflects 
and points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that by your spirit you would open our, whole, our eyes to behold your glory. Uh, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, every month here at the branch, on the first Sunday of every month, we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper. We eat a tiny little bit of bread and drink a little bit of grape juice. And next Sunday, because it's the first Sunday of the month, we'll do that again. But why do we do that? Why do we do eat a tiny piece of bread and drink a little bit of grape juice? What does it mean? How important is that really? And how seriously should we be treating it? Now, those are all questions that are dealt with here in that passage that Sarah read for us. Uh, in this section of his letter to the Corinthians, Paul is talking about how the Corinthian church, the Christians there, were abusing this meal, this Lord's Supper. And the consequences of what they were doing were actually pretty severe. And so to address that, Paul is opening up to the Corinthians and then also to us what the Lord's Supper is really about and how to make sure that we don't treat it in the wrong way, how we can avoid being flippant about it. So Paul here in these chapters returns to a theme that he has talked about or discussed early on in the book as well, and that is the theme of divisions in the church in Corinth. In the first few chapters of the letter, Paul has talked about how some people are saying to, them, to each other, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, uh, I follow Cephas or Peter. So that they were kind of dividing up into camps and that was having an enormous effect on the unity of the church. And here it now turns out that those divisions are on displays, not just in people claiming allegiance to particular leaders, but it's also on display in how they celebrate this meal, this Lord's Supper. We'll see it's on display next time as well in how they exercise the spirit-given gifts that God has entrusted to them. But here in this section, Paul is focusing on the divisions that are being shown up in the way that they celebrate the Lord's Supper. And in fact, the divisions are so bad that Paul says, your meetings are doing more harm than good. Imagine if that was true of us here, uh, that, that our meetings were doing more harm than good. That We'd be better off saying, look, you know what? Don't bother coming. You're better off staying at home. Because what you do when you get together is actually destroying the church, not building it up. Paul says that's what's going on in Corinth. And the place that that's happening is in the Lord's Supper. And in the rest of the verses in chapter 17, sorry, in verses 17 to 22, he goes on to explain how that's happening. So he says in verse 18, In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be divisions, differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. So Paul, when he says, look, there has to be divisions, uh, is being sarcastic, is being ironic. And we know that because of what he connects that statement to. He says, well, obviously there has to be divisions so that, uh, in the, in the next verse, in verse 20, uh, the logical consequence is that what they're eating is not the Lord's Supper. 
They have to be divisions so that, Paul says, of the result that what you're eating is not the Lord's Supper. Clearly, uh, Paul doesn't want them uh, to not celebrate the Lord's Supper. He wants them to celebrate it. And it turns out that the way that they're doing that, not celebrating the Lord's Supper, according to verse 21 and 22, is that some of them are eating kind of on their own or by themselves or sort of just thinking about themselves uh, or their own little group and they're excluding other people. Some are doing that to such an extent that they're getting drunk while others are going hungry. So the Corinthians were obsessed with this idea that some of them were right and others of them were wrong and that was playing out in their church life and particularly when they gathered for the Lord's Supper. They were celebrating the Lord's Supper in such a way that it promoted disunity rather than unity. It's possible that the situation was in part the result of the design of a typical Roman house. So in a typical Roman house, probably much like our houses, a dining room uh, could only hold about nine people or so. I reckon I'd be lucky to get nine into my uh, dining area. Uh, But it may be that then in the dining room, sort of with a the royalty, if you like, of the church, and then outside and uh, squeezed into other places were, uh, was the rest of the church. And so the richest and the best were being invited into this inner sanctum and the rest of the church were languishing outside with the leftovers. To be honest, we don't really know the exact details of it and it probably isn't particularly important, to be honest. The main thing is that they were obviously overlooking each other. However that was working out in practice is largely irrelevant. The point is, they were overlooking each other and that was wrong. So that Paul can say, actually what you're, not do- what you're doing is not even the Lord's Supper at all. You think you're eating it, but you're not. You think you're celebrating, but you're not. And so it's sobering to reflect that a church can gather, and indeed a church can gather for the Lord's Supper, We can share in the Lord's Supper, but not actually be having the Lord's Supper. We're going through the motions, we're doing all the bits and pieces, the things that we might do every month, but not actually be really celebrating the Lord's Supper. Be actually actually be doing more harm than good. The benefits that flow from this thing that we do on the first Sunday of every month the benefits that flow from that are not automatic. It's not as though you kind of, you drink the juice and you eat the bread and just God's grace and blessing is just comes to you by default. They don't do something by just eating. It's not magical. We need something more than that for the Lord's Supper to do what God intends it to do. So what is that? What is it that we need in order for it to actually be the Lord's Supper and not nothing or not something damaging? Well, the first thing that we need is understanding. And so in the middle of this chapter, this section, Paul goes on to explain what the Lord's Supper is about. He grounds his understanding of the Lord's Supper in what Jesus did when he established this meal with his 11 disciples on the night that he was betrayed. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he celebrated a Passover meal with his disciples and in the context of that, 
he instituted this meal that then we celebrate in remembrance of that. And Jesus identified in that moment two parts to the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine or, or the grape juice. Uh, first, Jesus took the bread and broke it, Paul says, and verse 24 said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the bread of the Lord's Supper represents Jesus' body. It represents his body. It's not his actual body. Uh, the Catholic Church, you may or may not know, has wrongly taught for many years, for many centuries, in fact, that the bread and the wine actually turn into the body of Jesus uh, and into the blood of Jesus. And the Roman Catholic Mass is considered to be a kind of re-sacrifice uh, of the body of Jesus, which is all just completely at odds with the Bible's uh, teaching and are really quite profound distortions of the gospel and, of course, of the sufficiency of Jesus' work on the cross. Jesus is not sacrificed over and over again, but he died once for sins. So although Jesus says, or said, this is my body and this is my blood, we need to understand that he also said things like, I am the good shepherd. Not really meaning that he was a shepherd of sheep, but meaning that he was like a shepherd. Jesus said, I'm the door, not meaning that he is an actual door, but meaning that he's like a door. We need to enter through him. It's a metaphor. And the same is true when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. He's saying something about those things resemble what Christ has done. Again, as I said, the Lord's Supper was first celebrated by Jesus in the context of a Passover meal. And the Passover was a meal that was celebrated by the Jewish people in remembrance of God having brought them out of Egypt from out under slavery. And in that meal, the people would eat unleavened bread and they would drink wine. And they would do that in remembrance of the blood of the lamb that was sprinkled on the door of the houses and the bread that was baked in a, in a hurry, as they had to leave the land of Egypt. In, again, in that case, what the people ate in the Passover meal was not magically turned into uh, those things from that first Passover night, but they were memorials of those events. So too, Jesus reinterprets some of those Passover elements to say that they now point to him. The body, he says, points, sorry, the bread, rather, points to his body that was given up for us on the cross. This is my body, uh, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. But we should probably think more broadly, too, than just Christ's body given up on the cross. Uh, we should probably also think of the body that he took up when he became one of us, when he became a human being in the incarnation. It was that body which he took on which he gave up. It was that body in which he lived obediently before the Father which he gave up. Uh, and it was that body which, having given it up on the cross, he also took it up again in his powerful resurrection from the dead. Next, Jesus took the cup and said, verse 25... This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 
Now, those words are an echo of Exodus 24. If you've got a Bible in front of you, you might like to point uh, to turn back to Exodus 24 to verse 8. So Jesus says, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And Moses says in Exodus 24 verse 8, he says, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. In that context, uh, God was making a covenant with uh, with the people through Moses. And in order to establish that covenant, they made sacrifices and the blood was sprinkled on the Book of the Covenant, on the law, uh, and also on the people. And really, the blood of the covenant was there to establish this new relationship between God and the people. Their new relationship was grounded in forgiveness for their sins, and they were brought into this new, fresh relationship with God, if you like. The problem was that the people kept on sinning, and so that relationship with God that was established in Exodus 24, had to every year be re-established again and again and again on the Day of Atonement. They established this new fresh relationship with God, but then it fell into disrepair and they would have to re-establish it again every year on the Day of Atonement. But Jesus says now that his blood establishes a new covenant, a new relationship between people and God a relationship in which God has dealt with sin forever and in which that relationship with God is, does not, is not brought into existence and then fall, falls into disrepair, but in which God brings us into this relationship, brings us into his family and keeps us. In the Lord's Supper, we remember those realities. We remember all that Jesus has accomplished in his life and his death and his resurrection. And we remember uh, the blood of Jesus that established once and for all this new relationship between us and God, this relationship uh, forever. God doesn't tell us, uh, please note too, how often we should celebrate the Lord's Supper. He, He simply says here, as often as you do it. So some churches celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. Some people, like us, do it once a month. Uh, Others celebrate it maybe once a quarter. But Paul's not so much interested in that. What he's interested in, in is that when we do it, we do it rightly and we remember the work of Christ. And when we do it rightly, we proclaim to each other and to the world, the meaning and the importance of the death of Christ. Paul says, uh, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as I said, next week we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper. And the question is, as we do that, what ought we to be thinking about? What should we be reflecting on? Well, God tells us here we ought to be reflecting on the body of Jesus. We ought to marvel and give thanks that Jesus became like one of us. He entered into the misery of our world. He took on a human nature. He became subject to sickness, to weakness, 
and tiredness. He knows what it's like for us to live in this cursed world. And yet as he lived in that body, he remained obedient to his father. While we waver, he remained faithful. And that faithfulness and that obedience took him to the cross to give up his life for us, for our sins. He destroyed sin in the flesh. He took up his body again on the third day and he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's what we remember as we remember the body of Christ. We are such weak and sinful people. We're hopelessly lost. But Jesus came to restore us by entering into our situation and overcoming it in himself. And he now shares what he accomplished with all those who trust in him. And we ought to marvel, too, at the wonder of Jesus' blood poured out, that we were God's enemies. But if we trust in Christ, then his death has paid for our sins. We've been reconciled to God. It's re-established our relationship with God, not for today and maybe for tomorrow, but for today and forever. And that relationship with God cannot be shaken. It can't be taken away. And whatever needs to happen for us to persevere into the end, Christ has done, God will do. He's given us his own son, Paul says, how much more will he not give us all things? That's what we remember when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the body of Christ the blood of Christ, establishing this new relationship with God for all time. So Paul's talked about the divisions in the Corinthian church, how that was playing out in the Lord's Supper. He said the way that we need to deal with that is by understanding the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Finally, in the last verses, he explains what that means for their practice and our practice of the Lord's Supper. So first of all, he says that the Lord's Supper is not something that should be taken lightly. He says in verse 27, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner leads to guilt, God says, and even to judgment. Paul says again in verse 29, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. What kind of judgment does Paul have in mind here? Well, he explains in verse 30, that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. So somewhat surprisingly, perhaps, their unworthy celebration of the Lord's Supper has led to some people becoming sick and others even dying. Falling asleep is a kind of a picture of dying. Uh, Paul says that these immediate judgments from God have come upon them so that they may not be condemned along with the world. That is, the purpose is restorative. 
It's discipline. It's not kind of final judgment, but discipline. It's to teach and correct them. We probably shouldn't think that it was only those who had eaten the Lord's Supper in the wrong way who were sick and had died, as though everyone who was sick, it was their own fault. But we probably ought to think about it in the same way that judgments worked in the Old Testament in terms of the community. That is, the sin of one person would have often had consequences for the whole community. You see that in places like Joshua, the sin of Achan, and that brings disaster on the whole community. We see it in Revelation, the letters to the churches too, where the sins of some of the people in the churches has effects for the whole church. And that's probably what we should understand here as well. That the unworthy participation of some in the church was having larger consequences for the whole community, the whole church community. But again, the purpose of that is so that as a community, they might have the opportunity to repent before the Lord comes uh, or before they die. They might be able to uh, repent from their sin and trust uh, in Christ. I don't know about you, but the idea that God's discipline could come on the church because of unworthy participation in the Lord's Supper is not something that's usually front and centre in my mind. Uh, every month when we do, when we eat together, uh, I'm not often thinking about the consequences that that may have on our whole church. But it really kind of raises the stakes, doesn't it, for what we do every month. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's not something to be done indifferently. It's not something to be done without thinking. It's not something to be done without understanding. It's actually something that can bring God's disciplining hand on the whole church. Of course, again, uh, we ought not to think that's because the Lord's Supper is somehow magical. Uh, it's, that is, it's not, it's not because the Lord's Supper is magical that it has this particular penalty associated with it. Rather, what's true here at the Lord's Supper is true of any sin in the church. Dealing cheaply with the grace of God will always bring God's disciplining hand against the church. But one of the ways that we can deal cheaply with the grace of God, the Bible says, is by careless participation in this, what is a gift of God, that is, the Lord's Supper is a remembrance and a memorial of what Christ has done. So we've got to be careful that we don't celebrate in an unworthy manner. Uh, but what does that mean? Well, Paul explains that a little further in the next few verses, and he says two additional things. He says in verse 28, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. And then in verse 29 he says, For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So there's three things there, really, that he picks up on. There's this sin against the body and blood of our Lord. There's this call for self-examination. And there's this statement about eating and drinking without discerning the body of Christ. It might be helpful to say what the issue isn't before we talk about what the issue is. And the issue isn't, I don't think, simply their lack of unity. 
So some people would take it here that Paul is saying, you're divided as you celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, but Jesus died for his body, and his body is the whole church. And so if you celebrate the Lord's Supper without recognizing the unity that you have in Christ, then you're eating in an unworthy manner. I think that's kind of broadly true, but I don't think that that's the heart of the issue that Paul is talking about here. There's a few reasons why that view is unlikely, I think. First, in his reflection on what the Lord's Supper means in verses 23 to 26, Paul says nothing there, so he talks about the meaning of the Supper, he says nothing there about unity or about the church. He only speaks about the historical work of Christ. He said things earlier in the book about the Lord's Supper and unity, but he doesn't say anything here when he's actually addressing unity, or when it seems that he might be. He speaks only about the historical work of Christ. Yes, Jesus gave up his body, but the body that he gave up was not his metaphorical body, the church, but his physical body. Second, before verse 27, where he says uh, that uh, the word body is only used once in this passage, in verse 24, and that's talking about Jesus' body. This is my body, which is for you. And finally, uh, everywhere except verse 29, Paul's emphasis falls on sinning against both the body and the blood of Jesus. Uh, so it's not just sinning against the body that's in view, but sinning against the blood as well. And Jesus' blood is not a metaphor for the church. So the point then is not about their lack of unity per se. The point is that they were not celebrating the Lord's Supper with the life and death of Jesus Christ at the very centre. Instead of celebrating a meal that was about the life and death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, instead of having that at the centre, they turned it into a meal that was about them and their petty little squabbles and who was approved and who wasn't approved. So it wasn't, strictly speaking, their disunity that was the problem. It was that they'd shifted the meaning of the Lord's Supper. They were celebrating this meal and it had very little to do with Jesus. They turned a meal about Jesus' powerful death for sins into a meal about themselves and their own agendas. Instead of doing that, Paul says they should take concrete, practical steps to make sure that their meal is not about them, but about Christ. They should wait for one another, they should eat at home, uh, so the meal doesn't turn uh, simply into an attempt to satisfy their own hunger and to pig out. They were using this meal for their own ends, but Paul says if they understood the focus of the Lord's Supper, their meals wouldn't be displaying their division, but they would display Christ and proclaim his death until he comes. In other words, the problem is Christ had slipped from the centre. And so in this passage, what God is doing is encouraging us, challenging us to discern where we're at when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Is Christ and his powerful death for sins at the heart of what we do. To celebrate it in any other way is, Paul says, to eat and drink judgment on yourself. And indeed, 
potentially to bring God's discipline on the whole church. So what does that mean in practice? I think it means, in the first place, at the very least, if you're not a believer, then you ought not to participate in the Lord's Supper. If you don't understand the gospel, don't take part. You're not understanding with the grace of Christ at the heart of what you're doing. You're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. You're dealing cheaply with the grace of God. If your children are not believers, don't let them take part. Don't invite your non-Christian friends to church and then encourage them to participate in the hope that they might come to understand the gospel. No, they don't understand the gospel. Christ is not the heart of what they're doing. Don't bring your grandkids or your or, or uh, uh, friends who don't know Christ and then encourage them to participate. And for those of us who are Christians, we need to make sure that we come with Christ at the centre. So if we come and we're still hanging on to sin in our life and refusing to turn away from it, don't take part. Because although we might be thinking about Christ while we're participating, we're actually dealing cheaply with the grace of God. We're dishonouring the sacrifice of Christ for sins. If you're at odds with a fellow brother or sister and you're refusing to sort that out, then don't participate. Because you're dishonouring what Christ died for. Christ died for the forgiveness of sins and to end our slavery to sin. Go and sort things out with your brother or sister in Christ and then celebrate the next month. If your heart is bound up in bitterness and division, then don't take part. If your mind is on other things, it's so full of other things that you're not really thinking about the work of Christ. You're just going through the motions. Don't, don't take part. Christ needs to be at the centre, the memorial, the remembrance of what Christ has done. His body given up, his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. God isn't calling us in the celebration of the Lord's Supper to be perfect. None of us can come completely focused. None of us will come wholly in ourselves. But God does want us to come genuinely and not trampling on the great sacrifice that God has made in Jesus. Imagine for a moment that it's a couple's wedding anniversary. The wife or the husband decides to make a wonderful meal. They put all this time and effort into making this beautiful anniversary dinner. It's the best meal they've ever made. They get out the best tablecloth, they even iron it, they bring out the candles... Uh, and they, they're just so excited about this wonderful gift of this wonderful meal. There's two ways that the person receiving that gift can participate in that meal. One is they can just scoff down the food and at the end of it go, wow, great, what's on TV? 
The other way that they can receive that gift is they can receive it in deep appreciation and deep gratitude and deep enjoyment. That's what Paul is saying that we need to do as we come to the Lord's Supper. We can eat frivolously, unthinkingly. We can eat in vain. We can eat in such a way that we trample on the grace of Christ. But we can also come imperfect, unholy, still sinners, and yet deeply thankful for the grace of God. God says that's how he wants us to remember the death of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we just want to pour out our hearts in gratitude for all that you've done. Lord, we deserve none of it. We, we deserve nothing but your judgment and your wrath. And yet Christ has come. He's entered into our misery. He's entered into our sin. And he's overcome. He's been faithful to you when we have been unfaithful. He's given up his life for us when we so desperately cling on to our own life and refuse to give it up to you. And as he gave his life up for us in obedience to you, he also brought forgiveness for sin, for all the sins that we've ever committed. And having conquered death, he's poured out his Holy Spirit to now unite us with his powerful resurrection life. Lord, we thank you for that wonderful grace of Jesus in the gospel. And we pray that as we celebrate that next week in the Lord's Supper, that you would be at the heart of that. We ask that we would not deal cheaply with your grace, but receive it with deep gratitude. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.